Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. And today uh, we're talking about your brain on art. So we're, we're discussing the way that Art Garfunkel's music transforms the mind. Mm-hmm. Um, scans of, of the brain uh, mm-hmm. while listening right. to, to some of his classics, while listening to, say, Bright Eyes, mm-hmm. uh, or, or even some of his work with Paul Simon. Right? Oh, yeah, we're not going to mention Paul Simon. Oh, okay. it, he told us that it's uh, it's in his uh, the agreement that we signed with him. Okay. We're not allowed okay, to talk cool, about cool. Paul Simon. Or P.S., as he refers to him. Excellent, excellent. So, I mean, that's kind of limiting. Do you think maybe we should just talk about art? Yeah, yeah, I think like you're right. Art as- yeah, let's open it up a little. Uh, and let's just talk about art as a whole, as in uh, uh, more specifically visual arts, paintings, to a certain degree, sculptures. Yeah. Yeah, like so why we're standing in front of a piece of art. I mean, this is what we're trying to get to. And why we're completely arrested. What is happening in our brains? Why... Why are we uh, well, so attracted to something? You will or be some... arrested if you are trying to touch the art. Yeah. Or, by the way, yeah. yeah. Don't try to like uh, make a big scene with a friend. Yeah. And don't then, don't and expose then... yourself to it. Oh, yeah. Don't yeah. don't ex- don't. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. No. No overcoats. Mm-hmm. Nakedness underneath. And don't make a big scene with a friend. And then try to get the painting off of the wall and run away with it. it doesn't work. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but no. I mean, seriously. Have you, haven't you ever had a moment where you're standing in front of something and you were just completely floored? You were just gobsmacked. Yes. Yeah. Specifically, uh, like really, the last couple of years, I have two examples of like recent experiences. I love going to art museums, especially like modern art museums, but. Uh, in, the la- in the last uh, year or two, uh, I got to see the De Young Museum in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. And there is a piece there by um, an artist by the name of Irving Norman, who I've uh, mentioned before uh, on this podcast. And he- the piece is this enormous wall-sized piece uh, from 1966 called War and Peace. Mm-hmm. And I, when I, there were other pieces in the room, but when I saw that one, it was just one of these where I just stared at it because it's it's enormous. It's divided into three pieces. Uh, and, uh, on either end, there are these just, this dark, um, sort of metropolis-esque visions of, uh, okay. of like this nightmare capitalist future that, uh, that the artist was, uh, was perceiving and, and mm-hmm. fearing, uh, back in the day. He was also influenced by the, uh, by the Spanish Civil War. So there's a lot of like the horrors of war and the whole s- the central piece are these two titans, these two enormous pale figures, and they're about to to strike these weapons together, like these giant uh, clubs, and the clubs are like hollowed out and filled with all these tiny people, and it's just this an amazing, just nightmaric image with all this stuff go- going on in it, and there's, you know, neon and, and, and cities and bones and, and war and strife and, and all these symbols hidden in it, and it just it just sucks you in. I just remember just standing there and just mm-hmm. just standing there and just wanting to continue standing there in front of it. Another another artist that really impressed me in the last year or so was um, Richard Serra. Uh, when, uh, well, actually, when both of us uh, were in New York mm-hmm. for the um, – uh, World Science Festival. Um, I snuck over to, the, uh, along with my wife, snuck over to the New York Museum of Art, and uh, the, and uh, we mainly went over to catch this Alexander McQueen piece they did uh, with the, the fashion yeah. guy, uh, Savage Beauty, and that was really cool. But then we we, we wandered into this section about Richard Serra, and uh, in this amazing retrospective, he does a lot of sculpture, and a lot of his work is just black and white, especially his, his more painting type work. And it's, it'll be just like a, a circle, like a black circle, mm-hmm. enormous on a large white plane. Mm-hmm. But then the closer you get, you see all this texture, like the, the circle is, 
is it like comes out at you. It's, I mean, it's, it's a 3D. If it looks like it's made out of charcoal or earth or, or, or that it's just sort of worn there. And it just, okay. uh, I, I had a really nice experience just staring at these various pieces and just being sucked into the, uh, into the contrast of it. So how about you? What, uh, what have you been into art wise? What has really um, captivated you? I love modern art, but one of the things that's just stayed with me throughout the years is a painting by John Singer Sargent. And I'm not a huge fan of him, by the way. His, his whole body of work I think is really beautiful, but I'm not like, oh man, this guy's the uh-huh. best. But there's a, a, a huge painting, um, at the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum in Boston that I used to just go and stand in front of all the time. And it's called El Jaleo. It's E-L-J-A-L-E-O. And, um, <clears throat> it's just, incredible it just it's there's like slightly erotic and then you know it's by the way it's painted in the 1800s and mm-hmm. um you know this is an american uh, painter so it's not you know it's not that racy but there's a woman who is dancing and she's sort of swaying to the side and there are men playing uh the guitars in the background and it's just very moody and there's a lot of space in the painting and for some reason I always feel like I'm going to be sucked in and so it's very much a mood for me um, and every time I look at it again same thing I, I have a different uh, understanding of that painting and I think that's what's so fascinating about art is each time you go back to a particular piece you tend to get more from it and how amazing that someone can create something from their brain like that and give you uh, a, a new fresh experience every time you look at it and that is actually what V.S. Ramachandran a neuroscientist who we've talked about quite a bit says the purpose of art is he says it's to enhance transcend or indeed even distort reality and he's really big on this because he says that the reason why we're so engaged with something is we're looking at it and it's not reality. It is somehow a caricature of it, but it has distilled the essence of some sort of truth in it. Mm-hmm. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that today and, and try to even see if we can get some science behind the art going on. Yeah, I mean, it's you even hear stories. I've never had this reaction, but you hear stories about people who had just severe reactions uh, encountering amazing art, like mm-hmm. people who have fainted, people who come to tears staring at a piece. And, uh, I mean, th- and that just speaks, um, you know, maybe not everyone has the capacity to be touched like that mm-hmm. or the, or the, the right wiring. Um, as we'll discuss, you know, there may be some elements of synesthesia at work there. Yeah. But yeah, just the idea that a painting on a wall created by, um, an artist that has been dead for centuries mm-hmm. can still just evoke this visceral response in the viewer. That yeah. it can, and also that it can, it can anger us. It can frighten us. It can disturb us. It can, uh, it can bring us to tears. It, it can captivate our mind. Like, uh, you know, you go and you see a really awesome piece in a museum. It continues to play a part in your thought p- patterns for weeks, months, years to come. Right. And it's so subjective, right? And mm-hmm. this is why uh, Ramachandran and also uh, Pro- Professor Samir Ziki, also a neuroscientist, have looked into this to see if there's some sort of unified theory of art that they can scratch at. And, of uh, course, everybody wants to do this, right? Everybody they wants want to unify. It's like the, the unified theory of, uh, of humor, humor or know? the brain or, I mean, everybody just wants a tidy expert. And uh, so we're going to talk about that quite a bit today, uh, particularly Ramachandran and some of the thoughts that he has on this. Um, d- does it mean that it's exactly correct and we can just tie this up and call it a day? No, not at all, because uh, as we all know, art is subjective and it's very hard to pin down. But uh, what has happened is that there's a newish field called neuroaesthetics that has bubbled up um 
This is basically a field that's trying to try use the tools of modern neuroscience like brain imaging to get at the crux of art. Um, and this, uh, the artist is in a sense a neuroscientist. In fact, Samir Ziki, the, the neurobiologist that I spoke of, has said that art, the artist is in a sense a neuroscientist exploring the potentials and capacities of the brain, uh, though with different tools. And I thought that was really interesting. This kept coming up again and again in this research that artists are the original neuroscientists. Yeah. Yeah. Instead of using a, a scalpel or a, or, a, or some sort of scanning mechanism, they're using, well, maybe a scalpel or, um, or a paintbrush or a, a jar, a giant robotic cloaca. It, it just, it just varies <laughs> determining on exactly what kind of uh, art you're, you're really going for. But see, it's interesting you bring up the cloaca because they say that, you know, that neuroscience thinks that we can take this end product of art, right? And reverse engineer it to figure out how the mind works. And in a sense, when, <laughs> when it was, uh, what's the artist Vim? Uh, I can't remember his last name. Malloy, I think. Yeah. Uh, when he created this cloaca uh, out of this machine was really trying to get at the, the, the process of digestion, the second brain, right? Right. Um, so a lot of this is trying to work out our humanness. Yeah, and, and as we're talking about analyzing the, the brain, uh, <laughs> again, it serves to to remind everyone that these uh, the, the various scanning uh, techniques that are used, a lot of it boils down to looking, we're able to look at the brain, we're able to see how blood moves in the brain, what mm-hmm. areas of the brain are engaged. Just as we've discussed with memory, the way that memory is a complex system that uh, uh, interacts at various points in the brain and different systems of memory, the brain itself is rather complicated, but but we can look at it. We can see what's lighting up, and we mm-hmm. can and it's th- it's through that technique that we we attempt to understand exactly how we're processing things, such as uh, stimuli, such as art, uh, mm-hmm. so, or music, and other studies. Well, and that's what's so fascinating about this field of neuroaesthetics. That's exactly what they're trying to do. They're saying this is knowable. We can actually take the brain and we can start to map it so that we can see when people feel anguish or when they feel. Uh, you know, titillated or, um, it, you know, all these different things that are going through someone's mind, they feel like eventually they can tag it in the human brain and start to say, okay, how, how did that actual piece of art do this to us? You know, mm-hmm. what's, what's going on? Um, and this is from Jonah Lair's Psychology Today article about this. Um, and he's talking specifically about the Mona Lisa smile. In saying that this, uh, the Mona Lisa, which has captivated audiences for, for hundreds of years now. Right. Everyone's so familiar with this piece, the Mona Lisa. It, it, we really forget how captivating it is because mm-hmm. it's, it's so, it's so overproduced in culture that, and so, um, I mean, we forget that it's amazing art and it's one of the great masterpieces of, uh, of, of human artistry. Right. And people are, you know, there's always a, the, the question about whether or not she's smiling or smirking or, She's uh, actually uh, quite miffed, right? Yeah. Uh, and how amazing that you can look at this painting and no one can agree on exactly what her perspective is. I always see it like she's about to smile. Like I've like I've told a joke, but she's a little shy, so she doesn't want to like laugh or mm-hmm. give me like a full smile. But I can tell that I'm, I made her chuckle inside. See, I think that she just had a little bite of mutton, <laughs> and uh, you know she's trying to hold still, but she's got a, a big wad of food in her mouth. Okay, well, that, that's, that's, that's one interpretation. Yeah, too. that's my interpretation. Actually, Margaret Livingston, she's a neuroscientist at Harvard, argues that da Vinci exploits the peculiar structures of the retina. And this is really interesting. Um, this is, from, again, from that article from Jonah Lair in Psychology Today. It says, the facial expression of the Mona Lisa fluctuates depending on which part of our retina we are using to look at our mouth. When we first look at the painting, our eyes are automatically drawn to our eyes, which means our peripheral vision perceives our smile. 
This part of the retina naturally focuses on the shadows cast by her cheekbones, which serve to exaggerate the curvature of her lips. As a result, our peripheral vision concludes that the Mona Lisa is smiling. Livingston demonstrated this by blurring the entire painting with Adobe Photoshop to replicate what we would see if we were relying solely on peripheral vision. The end result is a much happier Mona Lisa. That when we focus on her mouth, the retina ignores the shadows. The blurriness disappears. Instead, we fixate on the lips of the Mona Lisa, which are virtually expressionless. All of a sudden, she is no longer happy. Excuse me, happy. The painting has literally changed before our eyes. Uh, it says, this ambiguity is intriguing, Livingston argues, as we keep staring at the painting to figure out what she's actually feeling. Which I think that, that she's nailed it. There's that ambiguity. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's what intrigues our minds. And somehow Da Vinci had a really great understanding of perspective and how to manipulate this. And it's not just Da Vinci. There are many artists who have uh, messed with all sorts of perspective. And again, this is what neuroscientists are so intrigued by, how artists are seeing the lines and the color and distorting and uh, manipulating reality for us and maybe that there's some sort of insight in how they see and how have they've kind of gotten into the human brain and figured out how our eyes are actually working so i mean that of course brings up this question of about how do we see um it, you know vision and perception uh, it used to be that we thought that uh, it was just the, our lens in our eyes taking in an image flipping it you know an optical nerve transmits it to the visual cortex boom we're done but it turns out it's so much more nuanced than that, what we actually perceive. Yeah, we've uh, we've talked in the past about uh, sight and perception and about the the um, the idea that uh, there's like a there's like a little area, like a little pinprick of high detail mm-hmm. sight. And then there's a lot of uh, low detail sight, even though we perceive we look at something and we think we're seeing it all uh, in high def. But our eye is really scanning it. Right. There's yeah. the, the grainy parts, right? And the grainy parts turn out to be really important in pattern recognition later on, and we'll talk about mm-hmm. that in a little bit. Uh, the 1950s scientists David Hubel and Torsten Wiesel demonstrated that um, instead of responding to pixels, cells in the visual cortex respond to straight lines and angles of light, and that the neurons prefer contrast over brightness, straight edges over curves, and that contrast allows to more efficiently pick out objects. Hubel and Weasel became the first scientists to actually describe what really looks like uh, something before it has actually been perceived when our mind is still creating our sense of sight, which I thought was really fascinating. Like, again, it's not this black and white. This is the process. This is what's happening. There are all these different things going on. One of, um, one of my favorite exercises is that uh, I may have mentioned this before that underlines just what's going on with our eyes and how there's more going on uh, with our sight perception than, well, meets the eye. <laughs> and that is that if you go to a mirror and you look at one pupil and then switch your vision to the other pupil and you cannot see your eyes move. Right. You have yeah. blind spots. Yeah. Yeah. And again, that's uh, such a good uh, example of how we can't necessarily always trust our reality right? and how so much which is fed to our eyes and to our memory is, is really just a, a matter of very selective pieces of um, things that sometimes have been manipulated for us if we haven't even manipulated for ourselves. Turns out that Dutch artist Piet Mondrian, and this, I'm sure a lot of people are, are familiar with Mondrian, um, this is sort of like a vertical and horizontal grid of paintings that he produced Oh, Usually and, with primary colors. Yeah, and I'm gonna I'm gonna add when we do a blog post to go along with this, I mm-hmm. will make sure that uh, we have outgoing links to some examples of these uh, different artists that we're mentioning. Yeah, 
Yeah. Uh, so that you have a handy reference of who these guys are and you're not having to try and spell weird names uh, just the right way and doing Google image searches, uh, you know, while driving, that kind of thing. Yeah. And he was trying to get at the heart of like a, a sort of truth about forms. And he was pretty obsessive about it. This plurality of straight lines in rectangular opposition. Um, and Pro- Professor Zeke has said that geometrical paintings like these are remarkably similar to the geometry of lines sensed by the visual cortex as if the painter could look inside the process in the brain. Uh, and, and by the way, when we're talking about this visual cortex and talking about processing, there are actually 30 areas of the brain with different aspects of um, processing your vision. So we're talking about depth, vision, movement, perception. Wow. So, yeah, that, again, drives home. There's so much going on when we're just looking at something. Mm-hmm. We're just looking at that painting on the wall. It's not just I'm looking and then my brain is thinking about what I'm seeing. It's your, your 30 different sections are working on this project of understanding what is before your eyes. Exactly. And now think again about Leonardo da Vinci or any of the other greats, uh, the great classical painters. Um, before psychologists and neuroscientists formulated theories of depth cues, these guys and and some women were actually working to create these palettes on their um, on their canvases to to manipulate your eye again, knowing on some level that if you draw your eye over here, then you start to to really engage the mind. You're giving the mind a bone to chew on to figure out what is the story that's going on here, and that this again is the crux of what. Uh, Ramachandran is trying to get at why is some art so intriguing? Why does this grab us? Is there is there one unifying thing here? And it possibly is that this the ability to manipulate something to the the point that your brain is really intrigued by it. Hmm. Kind of it, it reminds me of uh, one of the more antiquated ways to uh, deal with a vampire in myth and legend, and that's to leave a knot out for it. Or some sort of uh, either a knot or something that's woven really intricately, mm-hmm. because then the vampire will become obsessed with it, and they'll just stand there trying to um, untie the knot or just feeling the, uh, the the weave and the fabric until the sun comes up and burns them alive. I love that. So if you're about if you if your flesh was about to be pierced, you would just throw a knot. Like a good sailor tied knot, be yeah. like, here, there you go, and they would sort of run off like a dog. Yeah, yeah, but it, but it, it. it's silly, uh, but but I really love it because it in illuminating something about it illuminates something about humans in trying to come up with some sort of uh, you know mythical um, explanation of how vampires work. It really gives a little insight into how we work because that's the way our brains are. Throw it a throw it a knot, and it's going to sit there fiddling with it. It's true. We love a good distraction. Um, in a moment, too, here, right after we take the break, we're going to talk about other distractions and what seagull chicks hatching have to do with art. This podcast is brought to you by Intel, the sponsors of Tomorrow, and the Discovery Channel. At Intel, we believe curiosity is the spark which drives innovation. Join us at curiosity.com and explore the answers to life's questions. All right, we're back. Seagull chicks. What do they have to do with art? And what is this thing called peak shift? Peak shift. Okay, again, Ramachandran. He's thinking about art a lot these days, right? Mm-hmm. He's a neuroscientist. He's he's not a big... Uh, well, he is an art lover now. But at the time when he was thinking about this, he had been in India on a sabbatical seven or eight years and was realizing that he was responding to the art around him and the art that he'd learned in his Western culture and, and getting a fuller understanding of it. Mm-hmm. And he started to think about seagull chicks that hatch and they start to peck at the mother's beak for food. And the mother seagull's beak, by the way, is a long yellow beak with a red spot. 
And it's what researchers found out is that the chicks were specifically pecking at the red spot on the beak. So somehow they were hardwired to realize that red spot means food. So Ramachandran refers to the research done in which the beak was simulated by a fake beak with a red spot. Okay, so uh-huh. no no mama chick was involved. And they still were pecking at this red spot. So then they thought, well, let's just get even more ridiculous and let's put a, a stick with a red dot and and do this. Okay, same thing. They were like, oh, we, we love this red stick. Just give us some food. And then they, just to even abstract it even further, they took the stick and they put three red stripes on it. And the chicks went nuts. So, because <laughs> they're like, "Whoa, three moms, three meals at once." Perhaps, perhaps it was some sort of uh, representation on some level. Hmm. This abstraction of this idea of food and this form and this symbol that made them go nuts for it. So, so they're hardwired to appreciate certain, not art, but something right. in, in the aesthetic world. Some some contrast of of colors and shapes, right? Yes, colors and shit. And so what, uh, what Ramachandran is saying, and, and this is, this is sort of far reaching, but interesting. Okay. Is that abstract artists are tapping into the figural primitives of our perceptual grammar and creating ultra normal stimuli that excite certain visual neurons in our brains as opposed to realistic looking images. And that's the important part here. Um, that, that he's talking about is that this excitation that's happening, um, that the seagulls, are responding again to this abstract uh, symbol mm-hmm. and that we are doing it on some level too. And he points out cubism as an example. Okay. Now, before we get into cubism, though, it seems like a more, maybe I'm oversimplifying this, but could you say that a man, um, a heterosexual sexual man looking at a painting of a naked woman mm-hmm. would, in addition to appreciating the, the, artistic merits of the piece mm-hmm. might be attracted to it just because it's a naked woman and he is programmed on a couple of different levels to either, you know, it, as an infant, he would want to feed from a breast as uh-huh. an adult. He would want, he has this drive to, to mate and breed with naked women in paintings. Well, again, I mean, I think Ram Chandran would point to it and say that if you look at it carefully, if this is, if this is a piece of art, that's let's say vetted mm-hmm. as like a great piece of art. Right. Right. Okay? Yeah. I'm not just talking about something. You're not talking on about Playboy. Yeah, okay. Yeah. He would say that there is distortion involved. And again, if you look at it carefully, probably the woman's waist is really, really small, right? Okay. I'm going to guess that the breasts are really, really full. Well, I'm thinking classical art where the ladies tended to be a little bigger. But even then, he and he points to some really good examples of chola sculptures that mm-hmm. are found in Hindu art. Uh, you'll see that there are, are fat rolls and yet they're still uh, cinched oh, yeah, in yeah. waist. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, right. so and what he's saying that on some level, these fat rolls are, are communicating to the viewer, hey, I, I'm able to take care of a baby. I, I got tons of fat stores. Um, you know, you could you could hang out with me and uh, genetically I'm going to do you right. Right. I'm going to give you some good offspring because I've got the fat to sustain another life or so on and so forth. And by the way, I've got these great childbearing hips and I'm just voluptuous. Um, <laughs> so what he's saying is that all of that is being radiating, radiated to us on an unconscious level. Okay. I, I think it's important to, to bring that up before you go into something like cubism, which is sort of like the polar opposite of, of uh, um, I don't know, like Venus on a half shell. Right. You could have two pieces called Venus, on a, well, of course, you're referring to the Venus de Milo, but, but yeah, you could have uh, two pieces uh, titled like Nude on a Bicycle, and uh, the Cubist piece would be rather different than the, um, than, than the, just the like the straight up realistic painting. So, right, you would have different body parts on the bicycle. Ah, it could be, 
could be actually horrific. Uh, okay, so cubism, yes. Uh, if you think about Picasso, then then you're on the right track here with cubism. Um, this what is uh, you know a painting style that at first glance looks sort of highly fragmented, mm-hmm. but isn't. Um, and of course, like kind of a kaleidoscope kind of a thing going on when you look at it. Yeah, many many different viewpoints. If you if in you know obviously you can find the cubed images um, in the painting most of the time. And so he talks specifically about Picasso, and then he explains that in the fusiform gyrus, okay, that where where we're uh, processing vision, there are cells that only respond to certain views of a face, and then there are so-called master face cells, okay, that respond to all views of a face. And normally only one view of the face would be presented at a time, but in a cubist painting, the presence of multiple views could cause multiple single views Uh or multiple single view cells, to fire at once, thus hyperactive activating the master face cells and exciting the limbic system. Wow, it's like art as a drug. It's like cubist uh, yeah. stimulant that is uh, that's uh, manipulating the way that we perceive uh, the the face of other individuals. Right, exactly. It's just like if you have, you know, we talked about this with sugar, and you you know have a nice burst of of glucose, and the signal is is really loud to the, your reward system, as opposed to if you just ate a piece of broccoli, right? Mm-hmm. You, you're getting really loud signals in this instance, and you're hyper stimulating this part of your brain and and in your limbic system. And he says this is the crux of it. We are the seagulls. And he says, in fact, if the seagulls had their own art gallery, no doubt they would have like a million pictures of these sticks with, you know, three red stripes on it. And they would sell for millions. And, uh, you know, they, they'd have all these Picasso seagull artists. And the, and the floor would just be disgusting. Let's not forget that because seagulls are kind of nasty. It's true that the art gallery you would want to wear galoshes into <laughs> uh, if you weren't used to it. But, uh, I mean, I think it's a pretty intriguing idea. Again, is it overreaching? Maybe. Maybe a little bit, but it does. it's like a, a simplified model of how um, a human art gallery works and how human appreciation of art works. Obviously, we're, more, we're a more complicated mental model. Yeah, uh, so it's good, but, but it's, a, it's a neat, uh, simplification of the process, I think. Yeah, he said that it's this way to escape the tyranny of viewpoint, which I mm-hmm. thought, well, that is such an excellent way to put it because, you know, we're so used to seeing things in, in our visual world that when we're presented with an abstract, or uh, abstraction of that, then it is, it is sort of getting outside of our heads and the way we view things and it's making our minds work. And to that end, he talks about a couple of different principles that he relies on heavily to make this case. One is called grouping. Um, and he says that, you know, we have evolved in a camouflage environment. And as a result, and we've talked about this too before mm-hmm. uh, with pattern recognition, right. we can't help it but feel rewarded when we identify an object now, or a pattern. Instantly, what comes to mind when, when you mention this uh, would be the, the various paintings and photographs that have been created over the years in which an optical illusion or a hidden image of a skull is inserted into a piece. Mm-hmm. And of course, the skull being uh, like this universal image of death. Uh, probably the most famous would be uh, Philip uh, Halsman's Dolly portrait, of, and uh, I believe it was titled In Voluptuous Moors, uh, 1951 piece. Okay. You know, the one with, uh, it's like naked women. Um, and they're formed, they're kind of folded and formed into the shape of a skull. It was referenced on the. I don't um, think I know it. Really? Yeah. It was referenced on the poster art for Silence of the Lambs and it's. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's like the, the picture itself is Dolly in the foreground mm-hmm. and then in the background, these women that are uh, forming the shape of the skull. Yes. But there are a lot of other pieces where the effect is far more subtle. 
where it'll be like two individuals and in the background you sort of see a skull forming. Um, and, uh, and I believe Dolly, Dolly actually did this in a number of pieces. Uh, there are a number of pieces that you see the skull sort of emerging from the background the more you, you look at it. Mm-hmm. And, and again, in various pieces, it's, uh, the degree to which uh, it is hidden varies. But you, your, your brain does sort of like there's this reward center that sort of pops up. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like a more, com- more rewarding version of Where's Waldo? You know, and I was just thinking about this, too. I neglected to mention when we're talking about perceiving um, objects, patterns and even faces with the cubism. The reason why Ramachandran is really bringing that up is that Picasso tends to focus so much on faces and Mm -hmm. multiple viewpoints of faces converging like an amalgamation of one face but three different views of it. Mm -hmm. And again, that's that's what your brain is playing with. That's why those single face cells which are firing all at once to make one face mm-hmm. uh, sort of composition for you are getting so nuts because they're used to just seeing one viewpoint. Another example um, would, if this would seem to be uh, more abstract abstract pieces where at first it doesn't seem like anything, but mm-hmm. then as your brain begins to assemble the pieces and begins to make sense of it, you, you say, we'll see the, say the silhouette of an animal somewhere mm-hmm. in the shape or something vaguely familiar with you end up with this interpretation of uh, of what is hidden in the piece. Right, or perceptual problem solving is is what he also talks about uh, or the peekaboo principle. Okay. And he even says this in an erotic art that's um highly abstract is that it's that peekaboo principle of well I'm not quite sure what I'm seeing here. And then the reward system starts to system starts to kick in when those patterns are revealed. Ah, okay. Yeah. So this uh, perceptual uh, problem solving, it comes back again to trying to figure out what is the message of the piece, what is going on. If there's a scene taking place in the piece, what yeah. does it mean? So when I look at the work of Irving Norman and I see this, uh, all this stuff going on, my brain is trying to process what's going on in mm-hmm. the piece and what the what he's trying to say about uh, about the state of 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 civilization and, and culture. Yeah. So, I mean, you're talking about a highly metaphorical work and Ramachandran also talks about metaphors being really important. And he brings up the painting Guernica, which is about uh, the Spanish civil war bombing of the city of Guernica. And, and it's obviously it's, it's not a, a literal representation of it. It's a bull uh, goring a horse. There's a light bulb. And of course you see people are suffering in the painting, but it's a, it's an enormous canvas. It's black and white and gray. And what it's doing, he says, it is taking unrelated objects uh, and directly comparing it and giving birth to a new idea. So, yes, we have these these objects going on, uh, but we don't necessarily think, okay, a bull, a horse, you know, being gored, this means war. But he has successfully linked these things to us. And this is what's uh, creating, I'm, I'm sure, new neural pathways actually in our brain because we are processing this new information and making new connections. Oh. Uh, and before we uh, go any farther, I just want to mention, uh, if, you, if you're interested and you want to learn more about Pablo Picasso, Salvador Dali, or um, or any of these uh, these famous, iconic artists, um, Leonardo da Vinci, uh, go to the House of Works website because we have a number of really cool articles on each of these uh, these artists, uh, specifically uh, Pablo Picasso. Uh, I remember offhand. I believe that one was written by Jessica Toothman. Yeah, and we actually have an article, too, on uh, music and art, why we respond to it. That one's by Josh Clark, which is pretty interesting, too. But all of this sort of points to, again, this question, are there artistic universals? It's, it's a hard question to answer. So the easy answer would seem to be um, there is no uh, universal uh, understanding of art, that it's um, that it, it varies from, just as it varies from person to person. Right. Mm-hmm. The modern art that's loved by one person may be hated by the by the other. I remember uh, I was on this uh, this boat tour 
uh, on, on the Thames in, uh, in London. And the, the guide was this like Cockney, very like Cockney tour guide. Mm-hmm. And he was pointing out different things and he pointed out the Tate Modern and he would, he would just completely dismiss <laughs> it. He was like, it's like, Oh, you can go over there if you want to. It's just a bunch of, uh, bunch of rubbish. I threw a pizza box in the garbage the other day and you can put that up on the wall and, and, uh, and nice. yeah, well, thank you. Mm-hmm. I don't get to bust out the Cockney that often, but it was hilarious because this guy was just like, ah, it's rubbish. A whole building full of rubbish. The real art's over here. And, uh, and other people would be like, oh, all that dreadful old historic garbage. Yeah, all that the, musty stuff. Yeah, don't, uh, the impressionist, uh, don't give me any of that. Throw me, show me the cloaca machine. Show me the, <laughs> show me the, the, the mind, uh, blowing, jaw dropping pieces that you walk into the room and you just stand there trying to figure out what they were thinking. Mm-hmm. Or like when I was in the Tate Modern, why is that painting making a farting noise? <laughs> there was this room full of pieces and there were, I mean, the Tate Modern is an amazing place and there's a lot to take in. But then, so there's this one room and had several just really amazing pieces. But one of the machines just, uh, one of the uh, installations there was making this farting noise over and over again. And it was kind of distracting to your appreciation of the other pieces. But I, I guess the artist had something specific in mind. Well, and then, okay, so it makes me think, okay, we, we think we're such clever creatures and we make farting paintings. What about, uh, what about nature? Uh, do we create art? Do do animals, creatures, create art? Well, the bowerbird, the male bowerbird, is a great example of this. And uh, if you've if you spent any time watching some of the great uh, BBC Discovery co-productions, which I'm always talking about, mm-hmm. and I'm sure everyone's familiar with the, the very like Life, Human Planet, um, the various Attenborough pieces, uh, you've probably seen the bowerbird. The, the male bowerbird builds this little kind of a love shack. Um, <laughs> He, uh, uh, it's very intentional. It's not just us actually reading right, pattern right. into this. Like by the way. this is a, this is not the place he lives. This is a a wonderful little art. Like it looks like modern art made mm-hmm. from found materials. And mm-hmm. I mean that's what it is. He he makes this lovely little little uh, hovel um, with uh, archways, with archways, weaves it together. He gathers colorful uh, just bits of everything. Like if there is human garbage around, he will incorporate that. Like if he can find some. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the reasons when they're filming these documentaries, they have to go out in the middle of nowhere to try and find them because they don't want bowerbirds that are gathering things like car keys or <laughs> right. or um, or candy wrappers. That would be modern art. Right. But instead, you know, they're ideally they're gathering um, little bits of flowers, mm-hmm. uh, even little bits of like rotting material, just very just various color schemes going on. Right. Exactly. They're grouping them by like. So they'll have red berries mm-hmm. all in one group and blueberries all in one group. And the whole idea, of course, is to impress a potential mate mm-hmm. and be like, look at this bowerbird. He's got it going on. He's got fantastic artistic ability, mm-hmm. fantastic artistic taste. He was able to build this thing. He's going to be a great bird to mate with for like five seconds or however long it takes. It's amazingly <laughs> fast. Uh, All of that for happens. just five seconds, I'll tell you. Um, but yeah, I mean, so we see this in, in nature. And certainly there are people who will say that the reason why humans do it is because on some level it is transmitting this uh, this idea to a potential mate that we're skillful and we're intelligent and we're, you know, we already know that we're tool users, but we're able to plan and mm-hmm. to create these abstraction or abstractions of our lives. Um so, you know, there's a, there's a reason for the reason, for why we do it. It's just a question of, um, why is it good and why does it provoke emotion? So we know it's not just this idea of, okay, well, we're all just seagulls looking for, for some representation of our next 
meal, um, the MRIs have actually shown that when we look at our, the same regions of the brain that are involved in experience, emotion are activated when shown really aesthetically pleasing art. And also there's memory involved too. It's just not as clear cut as like, hey, this is a representation of, of what we, uh, desire. Yeah, yeah, you're going to have uh, some pieces of, of art are going to speak to nostalgia. They're going to speak to uh, to to memories and very much to emotion. I mean, you can't you can't look at a painting uh, on one level. There's painting of a beautiful woman. It's going to evoke some sort of emotional response uh, in a, in addition to visceral response in in many viewers. Mm-hmm. Uh, painting of a baby, same thing. Painting. I mean, just look at any given picture of a cat, right? <laughs> yeah. Then it's going to it's going to interact with us on some level. I mean, how can you not? Yeah. You know, put that Even in a if you museum. Hate cats, you know, you're, you're going to be like, oh, that cat. <laughs> okay, well, this is from an article by Professor Hang from uh, Stanford University, and he says, "What if instead of viewing art as a dispensable luxury, we could see it as a key ingredient in unlocking the great mysteries of neuroscience?" University of California, San Francisco surgeon, art enthusiast, and author Leonard Schlein writes that just as combining information from our two eyes enhances the third dimension of depth. By, quote, seeing the world through different lenses of art and science and by integrating these perspectives, we arrive at a deeper understanding of reality. Well, that sounds pretty good. I'll go with that. Yeah. I mean, and and again, it's like if you want to study the digestive system, you want to feed it something and see how it moves through. And... uh, and it, it keeps coming back around to the cloaca box. It Sorry, always but, does. But, but, it, but likewise with the brain, you want to give it something to chew on. You want to give it that yep. bone and then, and then see how it is, how it is chewing it. It's how it is interacting with the stimuli. And as if we, as we discussed, there are few stimuli as powerful as, and as complex as, uh, as art. The question is whether or not Ziki and Ramachandran and others will be able to actually pinpoint in the, in the brain and, uh, and sort of reveal to us the magic show that's going on. Yeah. And w- will that uh, dissipate our interest in art if that happens, do you think? I don't know. We keep coming back around to that that sort of question when it comes to neuroscience. Mm-hmm. Do we end up explaining away the magic of something and then does it still have an effect on us? I, I guess my, my opinion kind of tends to vary depending on where I am uh, mentally and, uh, and the specific topic. I tend to find it hard to imagine a space where we would explain away the magic of art and we would not be able to at least suspend that knowledge and appreciate it. Okay, well, just just uh, uh, indulge me for one moment. What if they were able to do that, to, to map these processes in the brain? And the Blue Brain Project also was finished, and it was successful, and they were able to re-engineer the human brain. And they were able to then download a version of your brain, right, mm-hmm. onto a computer. Okay. okay, and then they could create a Picasso painting system, uh, or rather software, that they could then download into that version and then upload to your current brain, and then you could paint like Picasso. Well, I guess that would be cool. I mean, that gets into <laughs> that gets into the whole question too of robotic uh, paintings. There, there have been a number of projects. Uh, I, I wrote a little about this for Curiosity Project. Uh, people working on on computers that can paint, that can create works of art. And at what point are we in danger of, or or in a situation? I don't know if it's danger. Depends on your perspective and whether or not you're an artist. But uh, do we reach a point where a computer can create a piece of art as compelling as human created art? That's and I don't question. know. I mean, it, it. It. Some people would say yes. It will definitely, definitely get there. Other people say, well, the human uh, creative spirit is always going to bring something a little different. There, there, you can't map that. You can't match that with a computer. I don't know. We'll see. What do you guys think? Yeah, and what is your uh, favorite piece of art? Would love to know, and and why. Yeah, yeah. Send us a link to it too, so we can we can look at it. 
In the meantime, let's uh, let's get some letters rolling. Let's get the, the art off the conveyor belt and the, the letters on. Yeah, I've got a couple of two quick ones here. Um, we heard a little from a lot of people about imaginary friends. Uh, we discussed, this is one of our sort of Halloween-themed uh, ones, about the creepy, awesome world of imaginary friends and about you know, how it's a little weird and how it, but it, how it, it ultimately is, is very much a part of how our brain works. Um, so we asked everyone to share their imaginary friend experiences, and we heard from a lot of people. Uh, we, we can't read them all, but here are a couple. Uh, Daniil writes in and says, Hey, guys, I was listening to your podcast about imaginary friends, and I wanted to share my imaginary friend I had when I was little. I can't remember his name, and it is kind of embarrassing, but I had an imaginary cheetah with bat wings. He could fly super fast, and on long car rides, I would imagine he would roll really fast like Sonic the Hedgehog. I created this imaginary friend when I was at my grandparents' house in the summer, in my room, and in my room I would uh, sleep. It would appear very dark and scary. He would protect me from the shadows of the night. Uh, furthermore, I adore your podcast. Thank you for all the interesting information. All right, a cheetah with flying wings. Bat wings. Bat yeah, wings. I love that. I love that's it. A, that's, a, that's one of the best ones we've received. Um, we also heard from Zach. Zach writes in and says, Hi, stuff to blow the mind people. I just finished listening to your imaginary friends podcast and started to think about my own imaginary friends. According to my parents, I had an imaginary friend called Jeremy, who is a mouse squirtle. Um, oh, the Pokemon, which is weird because I've never been into Pokemon. Uh, and assorted barn animals. Uh, I was also surprised by Robert's comment about having fantasy worlds friends uh, to an inappropriate age. Personally, I don't think there is an inappropriate age to have fantasy worlds at. Uh, I'm in a grade 8, and I still play with spaceships and pretend to captain them to far reaches of the galaxy, and I'm not the only uh, one of one of a lot of my friends uh, who play role-playing games and other such fantasy games. I think it's uh, appropriate as long as it is fun, Zach. And I, I totally agree. Yeah. Um, I mean, I was definitely one of those kids where, like, growing up, I was, I feel like I was into action figures a little... It felt like I was into them more than I, uh, longer than I should have been. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that is, you know, when you're a kid, nothing seems more amazing than growing up and putting behind childish things, even though you're really into childish things and they're awesome. And then when you get older, you realize that you hopefully realize that this is completely stupid and you spend the rest of your life e- at least uh, reminiscing about the childish things that you wish you had or pursuing these old hobbies and interests. Uh, and, uh, like I remember even when I wasn't, uh, I got away from the action figures. I still have these rich fantasy um, ideas and these settings. And I would, I would. This is kind of weird and maybe embarrassing, but I would walk around, sort of, not really, kind of pace. I would kind of circle the house in the mm-hmm. afternoons, and and uh, I would run these stories over in my head. And I would carry a little red rubber band, or sometimes it was green. And I would move it around in my fingers, mm-hmm. um, which it was kind of, I guess, a tactile thing, but also maybe a color thing. Mm-hmm. And I would, the the rubber band would represent explosions, and I would make explosion noises. Uh, to re- and these would represent, you know, because my early the early stories that I formed in my head had a lot of explosions in them because they were basically mm-hmm. all action yarns um, about spaceships and robots and, and all this and and some of them were I think were kind of intricate and uh, and I, I'm rather proud of my, the early me having them, but I spent a lot of time doing that, just sort of walking around in the yard. And my parents probably were really concerned. I was about for a to say, while. I can just imagine your mom looking at the window, going, "Oh, he's doing it again." Yeah, yeah, hearing you making a lot of bomb noises. But, but definitely, I I will be the first person to encourage everyone out there to and not to you know set aside your toys just because you some some voice in the world around you seems to think that that you should uh, you know put your fantasy world away. I mean, I, I always come back to the the famous C.S. Lewis quote where he, and I'm paraphrasing here, but he says, you know, when I 
when I became an adult, I put away childish things, including the the fear of appearing childish and the desire to be very grown up. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, keep those fantasies with you by all means. Indeed. And if you want to share your fantasies with you, specifically um, imaginary friends, um, and of course we're always interested in your 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 dreams and uh, and certainly uh, any kind of art you're into. I mean, I'm I'm always game to see some cool art. So. Feel free if it is, uh, as long as it is not profane. Uh, feel free to share it on Suitable the. Suitable for work. Yeah, yeah. As long as it's safe for work, um, or at least you know, very classy. Uh, share it on the Facebook page for stuff to blow your mind. We are blow the mind on that, and uh, we're also blow the mind on Twitter. And you can also send us an email at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. Be sure to check out our new video podcast, Stuff from the Future. Join House to Fork staff as we explore the most promising and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow.